This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Philosophy of Fumbles. Designing Strategic Locations. Tragedy and Anagnorisis. And the Occult Secrets of Postmodernism. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And within the Gaming Hut, Patreon backer Daniel Crockless asks, What does the choice to have fumbles in your rules tell us about your game and about the moral universe in which the characters operate? Robin, a philosophical question, a thumb-sucker, a chin-scratcher, if you will, here for the Gaming Hut. Right. Well, it tells us that we have moved uh, away from the mythic mode of the uh, the great mythic reliable hero, the smudgeless uh, paternal or sometimes maternal figure that we, we can rely on to just solve our problems for us and never be uh, humiliated. Uh, so it's our we're moving away from Superman and moving into a more picaresque mode where the uh, heroes can amusingly fail. So less Bruce Lee, more Jackie Chan. Uh, less uh, Conan, uh, more uh, Kujul the Clever. And so it uh, envisions uh, either a, uh, a comic mode or a, uh, um, in more serious mode, a, uh, a world in which the uh, plans of mice and men go after Glade. No one is immune uh, from the, uh, the fortunes of fate. And uh, things can uh, mess up for us. Not only can we fail, but we can fail spectacularly. And the spectacularity of the uh, failure is a part of the fun. Uh, so, for example, when you see James Bond fail, he's in that mythic mode. He doesn't screw up, but rather uh, when he fails, it is that the obstacle is too tough or that he is momentarily surprised and he gets a, a setback that he has to overcome. Whereas a more uh, uh, picaresque or uh, a character in a world where uh, failure is always an option, it is uh, a universe where, uh, you know, humanity is either uh, delightfully fallen or uh, is, uh, is weak and uh, subject to the vagaries of fate. So it's, uh, you know, we're living in a, a Coen Brothers uh, fiasco universe where you uh, mistakenly uh, pick up the asthma inhaler and it's really a gun that you use to uh, mistakenly shoot yourself in the head. Right. The, yeah, the notion that the existence of fumbles creates a, a world in which mankind's efforts are dross and uh, the gods themselves mock our, our failure is perhaps a little beyond the uh, the evidence. And it I will point out that, for example, we don't technically have fumbles in Trail of Cthulhu, which is a maltheistic cosmos. That's right. So it's not mandatory to do that. But uh, there are certainly fumbles in, in Call of Cthulhu. I think a lot of what it tells you about your game is that you have a broad enough category of uh, success or failure that you want to uh, add granularity. 
And a lot of games with fumbles also have criticals. So although we are down in the mire with uh, Kujal, we are still potentially uh, able to reach up and become heroes. That we are in a world where both one foot is in the ironic mud and one hand is up in the mythic heaven. And you can stretch across it just like uh, the medieval figure of, of man as the median between microcosm and macrocosm does. From a design perspective... I, I think what it really says is that early games in particular were designed uh, by people who were interested in math and the randomness of math and, and interested in the full panoply of possible random results. And so it was not a uh, consciously philosophical decision, but the one that we can then attach implications to afterwards. So that, as you say, uh, I think it's, are there games that have only fumbles and no, and no criticals? It's, I think, uh, it's fun and exciting at the table when there's a cool, uh, uh, fumble. People sort of, uh, oddly in role playing, uh, kind of enjoy their big failures as something that raises the stakes and causes excitement and is funny and fun at the table. So provides a moment to inhabit. Yes. Um, and in particularly sort of the, uh, kind of 80s stream of role playing, there's a kind of a fatalistic stream that, uh, Call of Cthulhu is part of, but also uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is where you uh, celebrate the uh, the griminess and horribleness of it all. And it's like, oh, yes, I, I started out as a rat catcher and then I got caught in the sewer and uh, the, uh, the orc uh, rolled a critical and it took my head clean off. And wasn't that great? Ho, ho, ho. And so it's part of, I guess, kind of a, an obstacle course sense of, uh, of a more almost sort of a gamistic part of, of role-playing where it's all part of the, the jolly fun of uh, struggling along and winding up uh, face down in the mud. Yeah, if there is a game that only has uh, fumbles, I suspect that it's something like Human Occupied Landfill or some of the games that came out of that uh, British uh, game design sensibility, the post-Warhammer, where they're like, okay, everyone likes Warhammer. What if it was even grimmer and more horrible <laughs> type play? Um, the, the slay In the industries. Dark future, there are only fumbles. There are only fumbles. And so that, that sort of approach then is, is going to be, it's going to move into direct design where you are saying if there is only fumbles and no criticals, you really are saying something about human effort and about, uh, the nature of drama at the very least. And more probably what you're saying is that you have decided to embrace that as a core activity of your game in the same way that going insane while it is on on the surface a failed set of roles in call of cthulhu is actually part of the core activity of the game and so you can wind up failing your way into core activity as long as the stresses are high and the chances of fumbling are enough so in the same way that in pendragon if you roll on your passions and are taken swept up by your passions you're engaged in core activity even if you technically quote unquote failed the role um, whereas if you fail a saving throw in D&D, you're not engaging in the core activity of the game. You're paralyzed. You're poisoned. You're set on fire. Something awful has happened to you. You're the opposite of the core activity of the game. And so I think you can more usefully interrogate what does failure mean in the sense of does it move you into an activity that, as you say, a player can enjoy and sink their teeth into and find uh, fun in? Or does it actually just make you a more embarrassing fighter in that round or a more embarrassing, whatever it is, your, your spell backfires and kills all your friends. You, you stab yourself with a sword, you shoot yourself with a gun, whatever it is that, 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 that failure happens. It, it does occur to me that in trail of Cthulhu uh, and in the gumshoe games that I've done, that if you don't have a skill in the ability, you don't have any rating in the ability, but you could still theoretically do it. Like you have a, you can pick up a gun and shoot it. Even if you have no ability with firearms, and then if you roll a one there, you do actually have a, a fumble equivalent. So in Trail of Cthulhu, I guess it says you're going to fumble if you're not any good at things, which is part of the gumshoe uh, celebration of skill and competence, uh, not necessarily part of the Cthulhuvian uh, malign universe. Right. I think one of the things that people enjoy about fumbles and even fumbles that happen to their characters is that it's a way to vicariously experience and enjoy failure that is not in fact your fault right, right? that you because everyone points at it it was the die that did it it was the die that did it that's you know so it's it's funny that the gun falls out of your hand and skates across the floor and uh fires off and and uh you know shoots the dignitary that you're there to protect uh, but you don't personally feel stupid because of that because it wasn't that you 
poorly planned, and then the dignitary got shot, but just something crazy and, and wacky happened. And there are certainly, you know, uh, films that have that sort of disjunctive sense that anything can happen uh, at any time. Uh, you know, Shane Black movies sort of have that feeling to them, and they can be, you know, some weird, brutal thing can happen out of nowhere. And that's, again, I think part of uh, getting into the philosophical area of the uh, a universe that refuses to obey our desire to impose order on it. But I think at the gaming table, it kind of lets you off the hook, right? That if you uh, screw up because of a fumble and things go bad, I know there's certainly been players over the years in my group who kind of celebrate the, oh yeah, we're a bunch of dorks and we get into all sorts of dumb trouble and we're, we're fools. And, and uh, that kind of annoys me because I, I'm quite often trying to uh, run things that emulate genre fiction, and there are very few sources where the characters are routinely idiots, right? The <laughs> I guess Ash is a big example of that, the, uh, particularly in the new uh, Evil Dead series. Uh, but even that, he's an, he's an idiot who bumbles through and finally uh, uh, wins, and it's funny not because he thinks he's an idiot, uh, but because... He, he thinks he's good at it and he just isn't. Yeah, he has an outmatched uh, arrogance that doesn't match what he what he actually. Does. I mean, the other classic canonical example of that would be Jack Burton in um, uh, Big Trouble, where he you know fires the gun in the big battle and it shoots out the ceiling and the ceiling falls on him and so he's out of the battle for the whole battle. Yes, the the fumbles in that are a big part of why it feels like a role playing game. Yes, and but uh, but is also again Jack Burton is an idiot. But he doesn't know he's an idiot. He thinks he's John Wayne, right. and that's what makes it funny. And Inspector Clouseau is, is the same right. thing, right? He does eventually close all, all of his cases, uh, even though uh, he's a, a bumbling idiot throughout. And so that, that and that's, uh, and then we get back to Jackie Chan again as the example of the, he's part of the, an, an everyday guy. He's not a superhero. He's just doing his best. And of course, things will go bad. And of course, when he punches somebody, it hurts. He's not invincible. He's not a bully. Uh, he's, just like us, even though he can uh, leap off a bridge onto the back of a hovercraft and uh, uh, kick the uh, bad guy six ways to Sunday. And I think that that actually, when you're talking about the philosophical grounding, Jackie Chan is an interesting example because, of course, the classic thing that Jackie Chan used to do in all of his movies is the credits roll was him being horribly injured doing yeah. those things. And he would like, you know, fall off the hovercraft and he would kick the guy and, 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 and uh, injure his leg. Or you would just see all of the ways in which his sort of aura of supernal competence that he has in the fight scenes is not just undercut by his character being sort of a, a bumbling goofus, but also is undercut by you, you know, seeing not even diegetically, Oh my God, this was super hard and he screwed up. I guess that, that makes it more relatable to me. I sure hope you enjoy this movie because Jackie got volcanic sand in his eyes. Right. Yeah. And here he is with his eyes completely bloodshot from this. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, here's the part where he nearly died and got a, a, a tree trunk uh, punctured his skull. Mm -hmm. and, we get uh, to see the ambulance come and take him away. Right. And, and so that, that sort of makes that sort of commentary on the one hand, you're even more impressed by the by the action because you know at what cost it was purchased. But on the other hand, you don't feel like like let's say with with Jet Li, where you see Jet Li or and you're like, well, Jet Li could just kill you. He's he's deadly. He's a monster. But with Jackie Chan, it's like, oh, good good old Jackie Chan. He's like my buddy. He he's he 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 breaks his leg uh, kill, uh, kicking a guy in the face just like I would. Yeah, he's the he's the guy next door and. Uh... It, it's okay that he he's he's not dangerous. He's here for us. He's right. one of us. He's uh, he's part of a he's kind of an everyday hero. And so I guess if you're trying to integrate the fact that your system has a lot of fumbles in it with the idea that your characters are not idiots, that uh, you want to you know reconceptualize them as you know they're just regular folks. They're not like the the great uh, demigod up on the hill who mm -hmm. uh, never has to raise a sweat to uh, uh, fight the bad guys because he's, uh, you know, half divine. But you're just the regular uh, grunts, the regular guys who are uh, doing their best. You're Sergeant some, Rock, not Captain America. Yeah, even though sometimes, universes. you know, your your sword uh, gets caught in your scabbard and you get uh, punched extra times by the orc. Right. And again, that could be a, a thing that you can have if your game system normally has fumbles. That can be Batman's power is he never fumbles. 
you know, he's never going to make a mistake because he's Batman. And right. that can be a way to separate, you, you know, your characters, even if they're your player characters from some of the foes where you're like, oh, look at that. We fumble all the time, but Batman will never fumble. We should maybe not fight Batman because <laughs> we, we know what's going to happen. <laughs> we're going to try and, you know, we're going to cut ourselves on the Batarang picking it up and he's going to nail like four of us. Right. So that's and a terrible the Will Arnett idea. Batman. He's going to lord it over us. Afterwards. Exactly. He's going to be a jerk about it. But you're not, you're usually not fighting the Will Arnett Batman, I think. The, the odds are slim. I mean, roll on the random Batman table, don't obviously. Don't fight Batman. Yes. Also, don't fight Frank Miller Batman. No. <laughs> he, he'll lord it over you, but in an internal dialogue, so you won't even get to hear it. Right. Well, and, and the rule is if you're a good guy and you're fighting Batman, it's a stupid misunderstanding. Yes. Something has gone wrong. So just talk to Batman about it and work everything out before exactly. the punches start going. That's how Captain America fought Batman and it worked out for him. Exactly. You know, Ken, it seems like we've digressed from the question of fumbles. And therefore, <laughs> <Have we? laughs> yes. And uh, as the rules state, uh, we must now fumble our way yes. into our next segment. You've rolled a one on keeping on topic. The Kickstarter concluded on July 21st. But the dread pages of the play called The King in Yellow aren't so easy to escape. If you missed the campaign for the Yellow King role-playing game from Pelgrane Press, you can still drill a hole through reality and rectify that error now in Backerkit. Based on the influential horror tales of Robert W. Chambers, this latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Belle Epoque Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castain regime to a world like our own, or nearly so. When I played this, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not to mention magnetic, slipcase. We got chased by a spider statue. Also snap up our gorgeous found object collage Paris source book, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly. Dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes. It's time to give your love a compass rose and... Tell her that your negative qualities, such as the uh, oceans filled with monsters and the jagged shores, are merely projections on her part. Mercator projections, because we've once more entered that most rarefied of huts, the cartography hut. And as a hint to our uh, patrons, if you want to jump the patron asking queue, uh, hit us with a cartography hut question, because I always struggle to come up with these due to the fact that we are often trying to describe something visual in spoken word form. But in this case, Ken, I want to look at the question of strategic locations. Uh, plots and adventures often, particularly if there's a war aspect to them, revolve around the idea that a particular place is of great strategic or, or tactical importance. So if you're making the map that you're going to show your players and you're going to point to the thing that is strategic, that they either have to capture or defend, Ken, how do you draw that map? Okay, a strategic location is basically a location that controls access and ideally channels and controls access. So by owning a fort on a mountain pass, you can prevent people from crossing the mountain pass or worse, allow people to cross the mountain pass into the uh, lush and undefended and rich uh, country on the other side of the mountain pass. A strategic location is one that gives you control over traffic, and that might be the control of force projection. So if you own an island that is 90 miles off of a rich country, you can, in theory, project force onto that country, and that island becomes a strategic location. If you own something at the headwaters of a river in a world in which the water can be interrupted either magically or by building a giant dam, you have a strategic uh, chokehold over the economy of everything downstream. And that's, of course, why the British uh, made sure to keep conquering the Sudan, even though it never took. And uh, it's also why uh, the Egyptians uh, make very, very sure that the Sudanese government is never in a position to do anything itself and always foments little problems for them to deal with rather than screwing around with the Nile River. 
Uh, we have a similar situation going on right now in Syria because the headwaters of the Euphrates are in Turkish hands. But if the Turks ever let the Kurds have their own way, they will suddenly be in Kurdish hands and everything will go uh, south for people who are mean to the Kurds, which shortlist is everybody. So right, which uh, <laughs> the question, why does Turkey not want to let the Kurds have their own way has at least one of many answers, one of many answers. And part of it is strategy. So a strategic location controls access. It controls a power projection or it controls the actual economy in question. So in theory, you could have, uh, an area, for example, in Africa, where the uh, strategic minerals, your coltan and platinum, are available, that becomes a strategic area, even though Katanga, the innermost province of Zaire, is not strategically accessing anything. It's literally in the middle of nowhere, but because it controls the supply of metal, it's a strategic location because it has the commanding heights of the world economy in the great phrase of, I think Daniel Jurgen uh, used that in his book. But the notion that uh, a strategic location in a, in a F-20 world is most likely going to be something that controls foot traffic through a channelized area. So if you've got a haunted spider forest and there's one road that's kept open by the hydroid spell, that road is a strategic location and the fort at either end of it are super strategic locations. Right. And so basically the uh, point of a strategic location in a narrative, uh, now that we've listed all sorts of big, uh, so to recap, we've got uh, you can have uh, control of a mountain pass. You can have control over an island that is uh, uh, close to something uh, rich and juicy. You can have uh, something anywhere that has a high degree of resource. Another choke point that you can draw would be, uh, you know, if, if there's a an isthmus where there's a, you know, a prosperous city on the isthmus and there's one uh, land route to the mainland that allows all of their trade to go through. Uh, and so, or, often, or obviously a strait between two things where if you can put a fort on one side of the strait, you can prevent boats from going through it. Right. Now, are there uh, examples from history of uh, strategic locations that drove particular uh, military conflicts? Well, I mean, you can look, for example, at uh, the Khyber Pass into India. Uh, the, that is the pass over the Hindu Kush Mountains. There have been, for something that involves climbing the Hindu Kush mountains, there have been a lot of invasions of India through the Khyber Pass because it's just about the only good way to do it. Uh, if you go in uh, from the south through Baluchistan, you're marching through this endless, terrible desert. Uh, you can't go over the Himalayas. That's just not done. Uh, the closest anyone has gotten is the Tibetans in the 9th century AD, and that didn't really take. Uh, Burma is a pretty much impenetrable jungle. So the only way into India is via the Khyber Pass. So everyone always wanted to control that pass and controlling that created the conditions for an invasion. Even if you weren't planning to do the invading, you would, they would take over the Khyber Pass and then their grandkids would say, why are we sitting next to rich India instead of owning it? And that, that would happen. The Khyber Pass is sort of the standard example of a strategic location. You, uh, when I talked about the Straits, another example is the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, uh, the Straits between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, which have been strategic locations literally since the Trojan War. So since 1200 BC, they have been uh, economic choke points and strategically powerful locations. You can also look at the, the great uh, plain of Megiddo, which is a strategic location because it is the uh, road that you take when you're going from Egypt into the Levant, or when you're going from the Levant into Egypt, you pretty much have to walk across the plain of Megiddo, which is why in the Bible they say, whatever the last battle is between Satan and God, it's going to happen at the plain of Megiddo because all the battles happen at the plain of Megiddo. And that is uh, because it is the, the lowest spot, the most convenient uh, approach uh, marching north or south uh, through uh, Israel. So plot lines that we can generate from this are the obvious ones are your a goal as uh, being associated with probably a bigger military force. So we're probably looking at a scenario where the mass combat rules uh, your system has might wind up coming into play. But your goal in the most basic version of a story that turns around a strategic location is either to hold a strategic location or to capture it. But in uh, there are other possibilities in an unexplored world where part of, you know, not all of the terrain of an area is known, there's the possibility that you can find a previously unknown strategic pass. Um, so uh, several weeks ago, when we did our uh, CanCon segment, uh, we talked about the Canadian Pacific uh, Railway, which uh, they went ahead and decided to build it, even though there was no 
uh, pass known at that time in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, but nonetheless, an intrepid explore, explorer went looking for it, found uh, this uh, pass in the Selkirk Mountains. He uh, did it on the condition that he would be paid $5,000 and that the pass would be named after him. And it was called the Rogers Pass. Uh, and for many years, he refused to cash the check because he said he didn't do it for the money. Uh, he did it for the glory, and he preferred to have the check. And they finally convinced him to cash the check by giving him a, a beautiful gold watch instead. Um, so you could be the PCs in this scenario, and um, it could be about opening up a new trade route that then allows uh, you know, the civilization that you're working for to get to the other side of the mountains and uh, increase their economic opportunities by uh, shipping their spice or intelligent ball weevils or whatever it is that they sell. Or, of course, you can have a military scenario where your goal is to find a new way in to uh, attack the Dark Prince and his uh, and his minions uh, from behind, in order that you can that you, the plucky, scrappy, uh, intelligent good guys, can then uh, break through and score a victory you wouldn't otherwise be able to get against the evil overdogs. In a fantasy game, you can also perhaps create a strategic location by, by for example, carving a uh, walkable path through the haunted forest or uh, killing the mountain giant that lives in the middle of the mountains. And when he dies, his body becomes a pass. Uh, you can do any number of sort of high magics to create a, uh, a, 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 a gateway even. And so your strategic location can be one end of a magical gateway that leads from uh, your fantasy kingdom into the land of the Griffins, which is full of jewels and solid gold goodies. And so the strategic location is just wherever that gateway is. And uh, setting up your little magic school around it lets you take percentage off all the solid gold goodie trade. But of course, it means that whenever something comes through from the land of the Griffins, you have to bop it on the snoot. And conversely, your goal could be to destroy a strategic location. So if you're trying to prevent the Dark Prince from overwhelming the realm of the Hobbits, and the Dark Prince has to come through this particular uh, cross a land bridge, it's like, wow, what if we go and do a great service for the ocean gods, will they be willing to flood the land bridge and therefore make it much more difficult for the, the Black Prince is going to have to take like a decade uh, building ships in order to attack the hobbits. And then he probably won't want to, because even if you flood the land bridge, there's still a bunch of other people on his side that he's uh, will go and attack instead of uh, the hobbits, for example. And so that gives you a nice big dramatic thing that can happen. Uh, and, uh, or, you know, the alternative is, uh, there is a, a great drought and the ocean levels, uh, sink. Someone has captured Poseidon and now there's, uh, you know, the, the land bridge between these two continents that, uh, didn't exist before. Well, now it does. And now you have to brace yourself. It's like, do we go over to the other side to see what's over there? And, or do we hunker in and build our defenses because, we know what's from a legend, what's on the other side of that uh, land bridge. And the last time there was a land bridge, it was not good news. The Griffin people came at us. And so let's uh, uh, get ready uh, for an invasion of the Griffin people. Obviously, in, in a historical game, your pirate game, your game of exploration, steampunk, whatever, you've got pre-existing strategic locations. And you can always just lie. Uh, you can say that such and such a fort is the key to... Uh, dominance of this particular desolate stretch of Algeria or Afghanistan or Arizona, wherever it is that you are the few outposts of civilization against the locals who w wish you would go away. And even though that fort is not strategic in any other sense, it lets you dominate the surrounding territory because it's the only fort. Uh, there are plenty of examples of that in real life in Central Asia, in uh, the West of the United States, in India, obviously. And so you can have a story-based strategic fort, even though it's not a strategic location along the lines of Troy uh, for millennia. It's strategic in the, in the local case because it is the only thing that dominates that. And again, uh, it, it's more of a Death Star than it is a... Um, uh, and then it is a Strait of Gibraltar situation. Right. It's, it's a man-made strategic location, basically. Right. Um, and in a, if an F-20 game or some other fantasy world, your uh, strategic location can be quite fanciful. So, you know, it could be the Rainbow Bridge. It could be you know, a golden cloud that allows you to uh, uh, get up and down the mountains to uh, confront the, the mountain people or, or what have you. So uh, you can have fun with that. And it's creates a sense of credibility if you show 
your players the map and point to it and go, here's why this is a strategic location. But if you don't do that, they're not going to bust you on it. But then it won't be a topic for the cartography hut. And since we're hit the point where we don't have a topic for the cartography hut, it's time to let's maybe find a segment where we do have a topic. when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy. What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Ryan Mannix. David Larkins. Anton Kulikov. Chris Lydon. And Andrew Collins. The chudder of selectric keys, the glug of bourbon, and the atmosphere of plaintive meowing tell us we've once more entered the area of the hut in which we keep our typewriter, our bourbon, and our cat, which is to say, the area in which we learn how to write good. Robin, as is always the case, at the end of one's writing, one must reach a, a point, ideally, perhaps even what is often called a climax and as Aristotle pointed out, and why ever differ from Aristotle if you can't, if you can't help it, the end of anything that's worthwhile is tragedy and anagnoresis. And so we are going to take that 2,500 year old concept and Robin will tell us how to write it goodly into our modern day hose and poetry, correct? Right. Um, so Aristotle, who uh, said that he was not uh, describing how tragedy ought to be, but how it was, he was looking, uh, like some people I know, <laughs> he looked at the literature of his day, which was uh, Greek drama. He also did Greek comedy, but unfortunately we've lost that. Uh, so we, we don't know uh, his, his analysis of, of how uh, Greek comedy works. So uh, uh, Northrop Fry had to kind of guess at that and take over for Aristotle. But, I think his guess was good, though. Yeah. Um, but Aristotle looked at all of the Greek tragedies that were then extant. Again, we have lost many of yes. them. So the generalizations that he was basing his definitions on are based on a, a corpus of plays uh, of which a whole bunch are now uh, gone. But he defined uh, anagnorisis, uh, as I learned to pronounce it in my uh, undergraduate course on uh, tragedy and drama, that this is the moment when the tragic hero realizes that he has brought a terrible tragedy upon himself and even more importantly on everyone around him and possibly on the city that he rules because tragedy uh, to begin with is usually the prerogative of kings. He realizes that everything is his fault at the moment when it is too late to do anything about it. And uh, this is a uh, segment could be seen in, in, in a way as part of my ongoing effort to pay off uh, every course I took in university. <laughs> so I, took this really great course with a professor named Anatole Schlosser. And so we went through the corpus of not just English language, but largely English language plays, because of course we started with the Greeks, and looked at things that we thought of, that were thought of as tragedies or thought of as dramatic, 
and looked to see if it had this crucial ingredient. Uh, this crucial ingredient is evident in uh, Oedipus the King. Uh, that's the famous moment when he, uh, you know, pokes his eyes out and, as, as a visual representation of how he realizes that he is, uh, due to his hubris and temper, he has uh, accidentally uh, killed his father and married his mother. Happens to the best of us. <laughs> or at uh, least the best of us in Thebes, certainly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then we went through the, the rest of the corpus of, of uh, things that we call tragedies. It turns out there are a lot of things that we think of as tragic that don't have an adignoresis in them. Uh, for example, Ken, which is the one Shakespeare play that maybe is actually a tragedy, according to this definition? Uh, Lear, right? Exactly. Yeah, because it's the greatest of Shakespeare's plays. So, therefore, it's the one that closely, most closely fits Aristotle's definition. Right. And it depends on how you that's interpret That's literary it. scholarship, Robin. That's how the medievals did it, and that's how you do it now. Yes, exactly. It depends on how you interpret whether uh, Lear becomes lucid in his madness and, and what exactly Lear's madness is. But you can look at that one and, and look at that as an anagnosis. And there are jerks. There are jerks, Robin. Uh, some of them of royal blood that say that uh, Cordelia lives at the end of the play because they are monsters. <laughs> I just want to nip that in the bud because we may have people who, uh, through no fault of their own, decent people who are misled. And I just want them to know Cordelia dies. It's a tragedy. Right. Well, and, and uh, probably people started thinking of that uh, in the Restoration yep. era when it became... And then it just stuck uh, around, Rome. just like the monarchy. Yes. <laughs> it also turned out that Romeo and Juliet uh, recovered yeah. from their uh, poisoning and yeah, stabbing. like you do. I guess um, uh, Hamlet kicked Laertes' ass, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you can go mm -hmm. up right down the line. And Richard III repented. So the, the first question becomes, uh, do you actually want to create a tragedy or... Uh, do you care if the word tragedy is usually used more loosely than Aristotle and Anatole Schlosser would have it? And me. Right. So are you a stickler? Do you want to make sure that your tragedy has an anagnoresis in it? If I am writing a tragedy, I would like there to be an anagnoresis, though I think as a modern, I would allow an ironic anagnoresis, one in which you, the reader, have the anagnoresis for the character and the character's own stupidity continues to carry them, or tragic flaw continues to carry them to disaster, so that the point of the anagnoresis, the recognition, is still had, but it's had entirely by the reader. I would not rule that out necessarily as a legitimate literary objective of tragedy in the modern era. Well, then we get to the question of, in order to have a tragedy and an anagnoresis, one must have a tragic hero. And in order to have a tragic hero, there are several criteria he has to uh, fulfill. First of all, he has to start out at a height. He has to have something to fall from. Right. So that Vladimir and Estragon in Waiting for Godot are not tragic because they begin in the gutter. Right. And uh, they remain in the gutter and they may be uh, protagonists of cosmic horror, but they are not uh, or cosmic slapstick, depending on uh, yeah. how the production is. is Six uh, of one, half dozen of the other, really? Opposite sides of the same coin, people. So, traditionally, your tragic hero, as I said earlier, is a king or uh, a general or uh, some other uh, great and lofty figure. So, the question, if you're writing a modern piece, is to find someone who starts out at a height. And, uh, again, assuming that you're not doing a, um ironic tragedy, which I would submit to you is a contradiction in terms, largely, uh, you want to have that height be something that we actually admire. And to, in today's antinomian times, a lot of the equivalents of kings are uh, generally held in suspicion. So if you're going to write about a political leader, it has to be a good president or a good prime minister. Or if you're uh, writing about a uh, head of a big, important corporation, uh, you have to make sure that he's the admirable uh, guy. And for some people, uh, that's just off the table to uh, begin with. Now, you can begin You can begin with a figure who is exalted merely relatively. You can begin with a, a man who has a happy marriage or a man who has a good life. And then he destroys it through his own tragic flaw. Yes. And that's merely because our uh, fiction allows a greater band of mimesis than Greek plays did. So it's not the question of we have to look around and say, who's the equivalent of Oedipus in the modern world? We can only write about General Petraeus, for example. We can write about anybody because we can invest a normal person's life 
with heroic qualities and say, look, it's, it's great that he's taking care of his kids and getting the job done and keeping that car maintained. And then we destroy it all because of his tragic flaw. And that, of course, is what makes noir so great is because it is these sort of human scale tragedies, but they have the full level of Greek anagnoresis that comes pouring down on the poor bastard's head when he realizes what he's done. And to uh, lay an absolutely free to you, the listener theory, the halls of geekdom allow us to create imaginary exalted positions from which the characters can fall. So you can have a superhuman in a blue suit with a red cape, or uh, you can have a starship captain, or uh, someone who is a, a scholar who has learned everything there is to know about the creatures of the outer dark. So that uh, in a lot of ways, the corporate-owned IP characters that we uh, continue to follow over the years and keep going to their movies and reading their comic books are the equivalent, uh, in some ways, of the uh, kings and generals of Greek tragedy. They have that exalted position. We've had to invent new exalted positions uh, in order to have to still have kings uh, in our modern era, but uh, but there you are, there they go. Now, if you're doing that, you're possibly shifting from you know an iconic hero becomes a tragic hero. The next ingredient you need to have for a tragic hero is we, the audience, uh, actually have to care about their fall, and their fall has to be self-inflicted in a way that we do not reject as merely stupid. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's more of a gloss on Aristotle than, than not, but sure. Yeah. I'm sure. pretty sure Aristotle would also have objected to stupidity. I feel like he and I would have many of the same opinions about what is stupid. Right. But the, the audience can't just go, he's not a hero. He's just a schmuck. Right. Um, and, and in fact, in this course that I refer to, the uh, professor did not wish to say that word in front of the classroom. So he would point to me to have me pose this question every week. Is this character actually just a schmuck? So he can't be someone who you think is just a fool or deserves to have, uh, he deserves to have his fall in a sort of a grander, uh, accelerated, uh, cosmic sense. But just, uh, he is not, his fall is not the result of idiocy. It is a result of some more important, meaningful flaw, his hamartia, uh, as it were. The, I was waiting uh, for that. Yes, we're not going to have this segment and not say Hamarsha, uh, Hamarsha, 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 Hamarsha. Yeah, and so <laughs> we should redo that so that it sounds like we don't hate ourselves for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you can hate yourself all you want. I, I feel guiltless. All um, right. At any rate, uh, the, the flaw is usually hubris, pride. Uh, you've exalted yourself a little too much, and uh, and uh, now fall. And of course. Oedipus uh, is certainly an example of that. He is, uh, uh, his pride uh, leads him to ignore the clues that would suggest that uh, maybe he j just shouldn't kill this particular king out of a, a, a rash fit of anger, which then leads to all these other terrible things happening. Or, and of course, uh, Lear, he uh, is prideful in that he wishes to be flattered by his, uh, his daughters, and, the, uh, and that's what uh, brings about his, his terrible fall. He wants to... Uh, just go around and, and royster and not be king anymore, but get all the emotional benefits of still being king. And so uh, his uh, downfall is the result of pride. And so as you're creating your tragic hero, the next ingredient is what understandable, I almost said relatable, which would have been a terrible thing to have said, uh, <laughs> which understandable thing leads him to his downfall. And so uh, that's your next ingredient. And so, uh, uh, Ken, what else does a tragic hero need, if anything? Or have we spelled out all of the ingredients? Well, we've got we've got the exalt position. We've got the flaw. The actual fall sort of, is that what you're looking for? Or can we just well, assume we, that that's we, the narrative? There's the act of pride. Action. So we're moving yeah. now into plotting. Right. Yeah. So early on in the, uh, in the events, uh, in fact, in Oedipus, this happens in the backstory. The tragic hero uh, commits the act... Uh, that expresses his hamartia, that then sets the tragedy in motion. In Lear, we see it happen. It's in the first scene. And so as you're creating your tragic hero, that's what is the tragic hero going to do that starts bringing about uh, this uh, disaster? And then from then, it's a matter of building incident upon incident in which things uh, generally go uh, from uh, worse to worse with the proviso that you want 
to still have an emotional rhythm that goes up and down. So there might be moments of hope. There might be things that the uh, tragic hero attempts to do to forestall his fate that seem to work momentarily. But ineluctably, in a spiral, we are drawn uh, toward uh, a tragedy. And so uh, once you get to that uh, moment at the end, that's when you are, uh, how do I bring about the final stroke? The thing that uh, the utter disaster is the next ingredient. What does that look like? And then uh, how is it that the uh, tragic hero then has the moment of anagnoresis after the final stroke, after it is too horribly late? And uh, and what is that realization and, and how does that uh, play? And that's uh, moving then from plotting into execution. What have I left out? Um, the, I think one of the things that allows the hero to have the anagnoresis, if you have that kind of story, is that the hero has to recognize, he has to maintain a recognizable moral code through the whole thing, because he has to recognize that this destruction was brought about, and he has to recognize that he did it to himself. So if he's just pig-headed, it's not going to work, and if he's just a sociopath who only cares about his own success, it's not going to work. He has to have a framework for understanding why he has destroyed himself. And it is that sort of, uh, again, that sort of um, ability to uh, maybe not identify with, but identify the character's thinking that makes them a uh, tragic hero as opposed to just a cautionary tale. Right, because like, Macbeth is just yeah. a gangster. Yeah, he's just a monster. And, and, there, and there's no point in which you say, Oh, uh, I, I think Macbeth can, you know, turn it around. Macbeth is just, uh, awful. He begins greedy and then he becomes weak and greedy and then he becomes murderous, weak and greedy. He, he never improves. He's never great. Yeah. Richard the third has a similar arc in that he begins jealous and, and moves through and, and we're just watching a villain operate. But, you know, uh, Lear is, uh, is a great king who falls. Um, and, uh, Hamlet has a similar thing where his own moral code prevents him from taking the action that would have averted the disaster at the end of the play. Right. Uh, Hamlet is less a tragic hero as just an admirable hero who fails. Yeah. One of the many great things about Shakespeare is the way that he is able to take the classical models, in this case, the Senecan uh, fury and add to them both the, the, the sort of, uh, more, domesticated uh, human view while also maintaining the, the mythic arc and uh, the Aristotelian level of meaning. So lots of, lots of unpacking to do with Hamlet, but, but what Hamlet does have that we recognize in addition to an exalted um, uh, state and perhaps a tragic flaw, if you consider being w- w- wishy-washy a flaw is that moral code that leads him to do, uh, you, you go back over Hamlet's steps and at no point do you say, Hamlet broke character, or even Hamlet was an idiot. You just right. say, look, Hamlet has led himself right into that grave. And, and Hamlet, when you look at each decision point, he describes himself as wishy-washy, uh, in iambic pentameter, of course. Of but course. It, that each of those decision points, he is uh, justified, you know, that his decisions make sense. So he is not foolishly wishy-washy, but rather he is sort of trapped by, as you suggest, a combination of fate and his own strict moral code that he, you know, he won't murder Claudius when Claudius is praying. Whether that's a light or a dark moment is a matter of uh, many, many books of uh, Shakespearean (laughs) analysis. Um, Now, uh, risking the the tragedy, or rather the hubris of going on too long in this segment, uh, in Trail of Cthulhu, you talk about a Lovecraftian anagnoresis. How would you describe that? Uh, That is in which the characters do not recognize a failure of themselves because seldom are player characters, the sort of Faustian uh, characters who bring upon them their own doom. The sin in a Lovecraftian character, the tragic flaw to the extent that they have them is of curiosity of wanting to know more about that weird village or that strange uh, spot in the, in the heath. And then they don't learn. It's bad for you. They, they get that message, but the recognition by these characters whose intellect replaces a moral code because the moral code becomes find out more about the universe in which as uh, both Lovecraft and his readership and even more his readership now all get behind 
it leads to the discovery not of their own tragic flaw, though it does of their own fate, but of the universe's tragic flaw, of the Hamartia at the heart of the universe, which is that the universe is meaningless. It doesn't care. It has no meaning to be teased out, and knowing that will destroy you. And that's the anagnoresis. So anagnoresis uh, literally means to recognize the gno in anagnoresis is cognate with gnosis, to know. So it is when we recognize that the universe is flawed and and irreparably so that everything comes apart. And that's when right. uh, the pity and the terror erupt, which is what Aristotle said is the point of a tragedy is to draw those emotions out. And, and then, and then act as a catharsis. Exactly. And pity of course comes from uh, identifying, you know, uh, feeling something for and with the characters and terror comes at the recognition that this could indeed happen to you. And that's the pity and the terror. That's why you feel it because that's the catharsis that Aristotle says uh, tragedy is for. And in Lovecraft, that's what Lovecraft is exactly aiming at, is that understanding that you too, because you have read along and read done all the same research as this hero, you too are now invested in the knowledge of what is actually going on in Vermont or in uh, the South Pacific. Right. And our hubris is to project human moral order onto a universe that does not possess it. That, that does not possess it and cannot possess it, and if it could, it wouldn't. Right. Uh, because uh, just like... Uh, this uh, next commercial, the universe is inexorable. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! It's time to once more wend our way up the creaky cobweb stairs where we will look up at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky and find out that she's just as glowering as ever. And we'll head on into the Edwardian parlor where once again we will, hey, wait a minute. That's not the consulting occultist I know. That's some other academic with a pop culture t-shirt and he's working on a, a paper. He's writing a medieval history studies paper about Katie Perry and his sure relationship to Madonna and the tropes and signifiers of, I think we've gone all postmodern here in uh, the confines of the parlor of the consulting occultist because Polydamus, Patreon backer Polydamus, posits the following. The postmodernists turn in history towards seeing historical narratives as narratives and studying how those narratives are shaped by the historical context of the writers has had many good consequences. But, da-da-da-da, what are the secret masters trying to hide by convincing us that it is just a trope or literary convention? Uh, Ken, if I, I, I know you fairly well, so I suspect that you take a dim view of the idea that uh, history is just a construct. So it must, therefore, be a supernatural conspiracy. It must. I think that the secret masters, uh, perhaps uh, they may wish to conceal the fundamentally tenuous nature of a constructed narrative, but they are doing a rotten job of it. Like with many of your better global conspiracies, they have screwed the pooch on this one. Um, I don't think anyone, anyone that cares about postmodernism as a trope or a literary convention, uh, doesn't also know that it is a way to attack uh, every received truth, including history, but also including science and gender studies and jur and juridicism and everything else. Anyone who knows enough to know that there's postmodern literature knows that postmodernism has spread its uh, fetid French tentacles throughout the entire construct, the entire corpus, if you will, of learning. So 
Well done, Secret Masters. Once more, you've bogarted that one. But the thing that the Secret Masters are doing by drawing your attention to the fact that they are badly drawing your attention to literary uh, postmodernism is concealing the fact that magic is inherently postmodernist. And of course, what I'm referring to is not just chaos magic, which is the most visible postmodern uh, sort of magic. And I think, should we break and discuss chaos magic real fast? For people uh, who don't know let it? Let us do that, okay. because uh, this is the only tradition of magic that at least some practitioners have based their work on my role-playing creation. There you go. And because, and because, as you have given away, the key to chaos magic is the ability to hold incompatible beliefs at any given time. So, for one ritual, you might say, well, for this exorcism ritual, I should be a believing Catholic and cast out ghosts by the power of Jesus and the angels. But for this other ritual, I should be a believing uh, Carcosan initiate and draw upon the ability to make art that drives men mad for my uh, ritual of uh, making my book get published. Or another person might say, well, I am going to take on the role of Hecate because I want to curse someone to have their blood fall out of them. And that means that I have to believe in Hecate. And so you take all of these uh, bits and pieces of ritual and put yourself in a position to uh, correctly deploy that ritual towards a given aim. And it is the moving about of the, of the uh, ritualist, the carcist, that gives it its postmodern quality. Because, of course, the quality of grabbing stuff from anywhere that's not nailed down and putting into the same ritual is literally as old as magic. It goes back to, uh, if you look at the Greco-Egyptian papyri, and you can tell by their name, they're already blending two things, uh, the Greek and the Egyptian. And we do not know, because we do not have a lot of first-person documentation from magicians uh, now or ever, or now we do, but uh, they, they used to shut up. It used to be to keep silent was one of the rules of being a magician. That got apparently blown up. But the Greco-Egyptian papyri, when you look at them, involve invoking uh, the Virgin Mary or Jewish angels or Greek gods or Egyptian gods or demons that no one knows where they came from. So they may well have been made up by some gifted uh, Alexandrian Robin Laws who was uh, creating cool interactive stories of, of pocket drama for his friends. So we, we don't know where some of those uh, names came from. And so the postmodern ability to shift belief depending on the goal is something that may have been inherent even as far back as the first and second centuries BC and AD when Western magic is being formed. And obviously you can look at uh, Vodun uh, in, uh, in Haiti as another example of the ability to believe in the Loa as well as to be a believing and practicing Christian and uh, engage in both faultless Christian ritual and uh, Vodun ritual as well without ever feeling any sort of contradiction. That's not right. technically postmodern. That's just being a person who uh, has incorporated both of those belief systems, but it, it it leads you into that same area. By choosing to work magic, right? you are saying, I am going to become the narrator, if not of existence, at least this particular corner of existence. I'm right. going to rewrite this little uh, bit of uh, the world so that, you know, if this uh, handsome Adonis who is not in love with me uh, is not in love with me, well, I'm going to change that. I'm going to rewrite uh, his affections for me. Or uh, if uh, we are uh, doomed as the uh, enemy forces are advancing us, I'm going to rewrite our chances and make us uh, more powerful. And the and it may well be that many of the ancient practitioners, in fact, were on some level conscious of the way that they were fictionalizing uh, reality, particularly if they were uh, military leaders or emperors or right. uh, declaring themselves gods. So, or uh, even if they were, uh, if, even if they're particularly well-read scholars, because again, the notion that history is composed of competing narratives is much like magic as old as history. It goes right. back to Thucydides and Herodotus who literally say we are compiling a bunch of narratives. I don't know how many of them you can believe because they obviously have agendas. This, the, the postmodernist turn in history is merely just reading history correctly. So uh, again, the secret masters are engaging in a head fake to sort of make you think it's new while in fact, it's the same old, same old, uh, the same shuck and jive they've been putting on us all the time. Or perhaps we should uh, turn this on its head and perhaps ask ourselves, did the secret masters want this to get out at all? 
uh, because the whole point of being a secret master, it's right in the name, you're secret. Yeah. And so if you're trying to disguise the fact that you uh, are a narrator of reality, do you want every uh, grad student of uh, in the humanities department copying your thing? Probably not. Uh, the fact that, first of all, the written word used to be extraordinarily powerful because it was restricted to only a few people. Well, now uh, almost everybody has uh, the ability to uh, not only read, but to write and therefore to um, alter reality. So it may be that this particular strain of postmodernism is meant to protect the secrets of the secret masters by encouraging generations now that's we're now uh you know a couple generations into uh, postmodernism by tricking them into writing very badly <laughs> yes. in an impenetrable uh, thicket of uh, uh, jargon and puns that aren't funny and uh, uh references to, and to use, nothing and useless parentheses uh, useless parentheses and and having uh you know a department of english which shall remain nameless, which had uh, two people who were uh, able to entertain theses on Madonna, but nobody who knew James Joyce. <laughs> Perhaps this is an attempt to undermine the Academy and therefore uh, prevent uh, people from accessing the power of the written word by turning uh, so many of the uh, written words by what previously would have been the magicians, right? If you're right. Uh, a, a university scholar, you would be an alchemist. You would be a uh, a, a philosopher in a time when there was no uh, distinction made between uh, philosophy and thaumaturgy and magic. And so you are have sent uh, this, uh, perhaps by working a spell, let's say, uh, you have sent uh, this very powerful meme, which is self-sustaining, because any uh, style of writing that allows you to publish academic papers that are unquestionable and uh, require really no research uh, and cannot be refuted by anyone else, and have a sort of a rote uh, pattern to them uh, is enormously powerful in making sure that uh, only the few academics who are still tuned into the real scoop of the secret masters, their, uh, uh, you know, the opposite of uh, postmodernism, their, uh, their pre-archaicism, as it were, <laughs> will still be able to, uh, to work magic. So those of you who had a nickel on Robin will be the one who complains endlessly about postmodernism in this segment. Collect your nickel. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm above all a writer, Ken. You are. You are above all a writer. And God bless you for it. Um, I think the other possibility that we need to address here is that the uh, postmodern baffle gab, of which you have spoken so eloquently, is in fact the new abracadabra, right? Because right. the original magical formulae, as you say, uh, writing was seen as an arcane art and uh, restricted to the very few, but the people who are writing down magic are not your Herodotuses and your Thucydideses. They are, by and large, uh, dodgy goofballs, just as we have it here in the modern era of magic. But what they wrote was impenetrable nonsense. And the goal of writing that impenetrable nonsense was to conceal the true magic secrets from the other, even other literate people to say nothing of the unwashed herd. So when you have the abracadabras and sator formulas and such of the ancients, you have the uh, endless thicket of allusion in alchemical manuscripts that I know you're familiar with. Perhaps Paul Deman and Slavoj Zizek and all those guys are writing magical uh, scripts and what we need to be doing. And again, this is the brilliance of the, of the secret masters, although they are fundamentally postmodernist in that they are re-narrating reality every time they use their powers, they are concealing a true narrative in a narrative that denies the existence of true narratives. So when you go deep into the Lacanian thicket, you can find within him a Kabbalah or a Gematria and, um, uh, pull out the uh, secret keys to power, but you have to sort of uh, break your face uh, pushing through the endless uh, prolix, as you say, murky writing that surrounds it. And that that is the modern day version of a Rosicrucian Fama or a, a series of seemingly uh, uh, random syllables uh, carved on a wall somewhere in a Mithraim. Uh Right. And so I guess on that note, the fact that uh, that authorship is dead, uh, perspective is um, entirely subjective and uh, cannot be sorted from any other uh, sense of subjectivity or objectivity, uh, suggests that this very podcast is dissolving in your ears, listeners, even as you hear this. And in fact, 
you maybe didn't hear any of this podcast at all, but in fact were merely the object of a magical working that would inspire you to go and see if Ken possibly has his Tour to Lovecraft, the Destinations Kickstarter still going, and if you check that out, maybe you will be impelled to take certain actions. That's all we're saying in this podcast that is ending, that never existed, that is also somehow related to uh, Madonna and Katy Perry. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Green Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Defend a strategic location alongside such patrons as... Ethan James. Isaac Priestley. James Pearson. Linda and Mike Schiffer. And Philip Masters. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Errorudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash KenRobin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.